Welcome to Filmy Girls Idolcast. Hit it! Today was a cover of Taiwanese singer Julie Su's Follow Your Feeling by Zhao Zan from The Untamed, who I discussed in episode 26, and veteran Chinese singer Na Ying on the variety show Our Song on November 17th, 2019. <laughs> Translation of the lyrics, not by me, goes like this. Follow my heart and let me go the right way. One day I'll make dreams come true. The song circulated on bootleg copies throughout mainland China, adopted by the young generation as something of an anthem as the 1980s turned to the 1990s, and still beloved today, judging by the reaction of the R Song audience. I highly recommend watching the video, not just for Xiaozan's bright smile and Na Ying's dazzling stage presence, but also for the giddy reactions of the audience. Aunties and youth alike singing along, their hard eyes are very much my hard eyes. So in episode 26, I went down memory lane looking at idol dramas, or what I think of as idol dramas. That is, dramas starring idols. And I had so much fun looking back at the Taiwanese wave dramas of the 2000s that I thought I'd do a full episode on the era. But before I begin, I need to make it perfectly clear that I do not speak or read Chinese any of the Chinese languages, um, and I relied on academic articles and books in English, as well as a couple of Japanese sources. Luckily, because I can read kanji, I was able to parse enough um, Chinese words to be able to dig for things like, you know, songwriter, 
which um, the characters are the same in Japanese and Chinese. Um, but if you have concerns or think I've gotten something wrong or misinterpreted something, you know, it's possible. So um, please feel free to get in touch. Um, I may be a librarian, but I am not infallible. And I would also like to apologize for my horrific pronunciation of basically every Chinese name that is to follow. And on that note, let's get into it. So as I said, I had an absolute blast going down memory lane while writing up episode 26. But imagine my surprise when one of the first things I came across in my research for this episode is that the phrase idol dramas means something completely different to Chinese-speaking markets. Namely, it refers to dramas in the style of Japan's post-trendy dramas, of which Kimura Takia's Long Vacation, which I introduced in episode 26, is a prime example. These 1990s dramas, focused on the romantic problems of young adults in a contemporary urban setting, making good use of the hottest pop music and stylish clothes, but infused with more real emotion and touching on the problems facing young people, especially young women. What relationship should I have with work? How should I interact with potential male partners? Is it okay to want to be swept off my feet? but also treated with respect as a human being. And make no mistake, the female gaze was key here. Writer-producer Kitakawa Eriko, the genius behind Long Vacation, really set the standard for a lot of what would become the common tropes of the genre, including the use of handsome male idols in leading romantic roles. And she would go on to work with SMAP's Nakai Masahiro, Katoon's Kamenashi Kazuya, and TVXQ's Jejung, among others. So I guess I ended up answering my own question from the previous episode, in that Long Vacation is an idol drama by my standard, but it's also an idol drama by the standard of the Chinese-speaking market. In a way, the tag of idol drama makes sense for these dramas too, because even if the romantic hero wasn't a literal idol in an idol group, these actors still had personas they carried with them into the roles. They had larger-than-life images that bled over into things like magazine interviews, television variety show appearances, commercial endorsements, and so on. And quite a few were singers as well. Projecting idol charisma is a different skill than naturalistic acting. But, as I said before in episode 26, I think it's still a very valuable one. I begin with Long Vacation because I love SMAP's Kimuro Takia, but the drama widely considered to be the first post-trendy drama was 1991's Tokyo Love Story, based on a popular romance manga by Simon Fumi. The drama starred Suzuki Honami in a career-making role as the bright-eyed Rika and Arimori Narimi as Satomi, a girl-next-door type who moved to the big city from way on Inaka and who was childhood friends with two dudes who both love her and were extremely handsome, as played by young actors Eguchi Yosuke and Oda Yuji. The four must not only navigate complicated matters of the heart, but also the ways of the big city and new cultural conventions around work, romance, and family. The drama and the theme song from Oda Kazumasa were smash hits. Oda's theme song, the perky love story wa totsuzen ni sold almost 3 million copies and remains beloved by the Japanese public.
covers of the song uploaded on YouTube have views in the millions. Millions. The key point here is that the reach of these post-trendy dramas extended well beyond Japanese borders, thanks to the combination of technological advances and a public looking for modern Asian stories in the newly opened markets in the region. These post-trendy dramas spread like wildfire, especially in Chinese-speaking markets, through both brand new cable television channels hungry for content and unpirated VCDs, that is, compact disc digital video, manufactured in the two big VCD hubs, Taiwan and Hong Kong. But while the technology and the dramas were new, these VCDs traced an old path of cultural transmission between Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Japan, as well as between those hubs in Taiwan and Hong Kong to the broader Chinese-speaking world in Southeast Asia and further east to the diaspora in Canada, America, Australia, and so on. So because this is my podcast, this means we're going to have to rewind back to the 1960s to talk about Taiwanese singer Teresa Teng before we can get into the F4 and Jerry Ann's Domioji perm. Taiwan, like Korea, has a complicated modern history. It was a Japanese colony until the end of World War II, and then immediately after the war ended, the island became an outpost for the mainland Chinese dissidents who fled the communist takeover of China. There are many thorny political issues lurking here that I am not qualified to comment on regarding the independent status of Taiwan. If you're interested, please feel free to read further and make your own decisions. What's important to note for this story is that Taiwan at the end of World War II was in the middle of complex political relationships, and the tensions and friendships spilled over into the cultural realm. What all of this means for our purposes right now is that young people growing up in Taipei in the 50s and 60s would have been exposed to a mix of all sorts of genres and styles, from the different regions of China, thanks to the massive influx of immigrants, as well as to the Enka songs of the lingering Japanese cultural influence, Taiwan's legacy of post-colonialism is far less fraught than, say, that of Korea. And Japanese ties remain fairly strong to this day. And you would have also had the domestic Taiwanese minge, and of course, American and Western sounds. The young Teresa Tang, daughter of dissidents who had fled to Taiwan, absorbed all of it. She started singing lessons as a child, won a talent competition, signed a record deal, and then dropped out of high school. Before she'd even turned 18, she was well on her way to becoming the queen of pan-Asian music. And it's important to note that Teresa Tang sang in Mandarin, the language of the northern city of Beijing, now the official language of Taiwan, rather than the Cantonese of nearby Hong Kong, which had been the old language of show business in China, or even the local Taiwanese dialect, which would have been spoken in most homes and on the streets in Taiwan. Mandarin was a language that could travel a long distance, across the Taiwan Strait, and even across the Pacific Ocean.
After dropping out of high school, Teresa moved to the show business hub of Hong Kong in 1970, another melting pot of cultures, and she worked with a local producer who encouraged her to lean into a more grown-up style of song and to develop what would become her signature sound, a soft, breathy singing style that set her apart from the other Mandarin singers of the day. And it's here in Hong Kong that she was scouted by Japan's Polydor label, who were looking to bring an exotic Asian sound back to Japan. They were convinced that she was going to be the next Misura Hibari. Spoiler alert, she was. In Japan, the second biggest music market in the world even back then, Teresa was able to perform on bigger stages in bigger venues than she ever had before. And while it was a steep learning curve for the girl from Taipei, she went on to have great success in Japan in the mid-70s and was able to leverage that Japanese cachet with a return to Hong Kong and to Mandarin pop with what would be a career-defining song. 1977's The Moon Represents My Heart. Things got a little tricky for Teresa as she fell victim to the tangled politics of the China-Taiwan relationship as the 1970s ended. She was arrested in Japan for using a fake Indonesian passport in order to get around travel restrictions. She was deported. Teresa laid low in California for a couple of years, but as the 1980s began, she bounced back and worked steadily with much love and support from audiences across Asia until her death in 1995 at the far too young age of 42, but she's still remembered as a legend. It's important to know Teresa Tang for this story because her career boom tracked closely with the opening of media markets and liberalization that was happening across the region. 
There were two other Taiwanese singers who found success in Japan in the 70s and into the 80s, Judy Ong and Ouyang Feifei. But unlike Teresa Tang, who kept her strong ties to Taiwan and to Chinese-speaking regions, both Judy Ong and Ouyang Feifei ended up making their homes in Japan, and I think have much more of a domestic Japanese image than Teresa did. Judy Ong in particular, in her spectacular 70s-era white-winged misarate dress, is a permanent fixture of Japanese mass culture, and even today you can find knockoff Halloween costume versions retailing for about 3,500 yen, about 35 bucks, on shopping website Rakuten. And I know because I just checked and am very tempted to order one to pick up next time I'm there. Uh, yeah, so Halloween 2021, uh, the wind will be blowing across the agent. <laughs> As the 1980s became the 1990s, Teresa Tang's music with its romantic, personal lyrics, so very different from the stark political art from mainland China, became something of an avatar for Taiwan, as did the work of prolific Taiwanese romance novelist Chung Yao, whose novels and the filmed adaptations uh, were eagerly watched across the greater Chinese-speaking community, from mainland China to Malaysia to the Western diaspora. And although Chung Yao's works were wildly popular and deeply loved by many fans across Asia, very little has been translated into English, and her name is essentially unknown in the West, thanks to the gatekeeping of quote-unquote experts who did not consider her family melodramas and romances to be serious work. And as an aside, this is exactly the kind of soft censorship you'll see in Asian pop culture studies. Imagine trying to understand American pop culture without mention of, like, you know, Stephen King. Often we, as English speakers, don't even know what we don't know. Anyways, Chong Yao, another of the many refugees who had fled to Taiwan with her family as a small child after World War II, published her first book in 1963, Outside the Window, an autobiographical novel detailing her unhappy young adulthood. An affair with a high school teacher, two failed university entrance exams, a failed suicide attempt, and an unhappy marriage. Something in Chung Yao's writing on her own troubled life connected with readers, and the book became a success. It changed her life, uh, and not just professionally. Chung Yao's publisher also became her second husband, and she was heavily involved in the production of the films made from her stories, to the point of even writing the lyrics to the theme songs. In early 1979, very shortly after the United States announced it would recognize the communist government of mainland China, the Chinese ban was lifted on Taiwanese literature, and one of the authors who was published uh, for the first time in mainland China was Chung Yao. 
Her novels, packed full of romance, melodrama, and intrigue, rather than uplifting tributes to the communist project, were smash hits. One of the articles I read for this episode said that after the mass burning of literature during the Cultural Revolution, the Chinese people hand-copied novels and stories to share. And, like, just imagine going from carefully savoring a limited supply of hard-copied stories to having 40 volumes of dashing heroes and tragic heroines just, like, dropped in your lap. The 1980s around the region were also a time of renegotiating family life and romance, and this was especially true in China, and Cheng Yao's sentimental stories of young people navigating domestic conflict really struck a chord. Perhaps even more titillating for mainland Chinese readers were Cheng Yao's detailed descriptions of characters' outfits and all the trappings of a middle-class life. Honestly, the few translated passages I came across make me wish we had access to these too. So this is from an article called Reception of Taiwanese Literature in 1980s Mainland China, where the author has translated a passage from one of Cheng Yao's novels, describing a girl with a weak personality and simply no taste, darling. <clears throat> Quote, she never dares to speak with strangers, and if she had to, she would inevitably embarrass herself with inappropriate wording. Furthermore, she was almost an imbecile in choosing matching color for her clothes. Just now, she wears a grass-green winter jacket on top, but a pair of pants in eggplant purple and a floral scarf around her neck. When she appears all of a sudden, one would think she were a character from Peking Opera. Unquote. Cheng Yao's Taiwanese dramas of the 80s, which followed very much in the spirit of her previous novels telling stories of Taiwanese life, also made their way over to mainland China thanks to the lifting of previous restrictions. But then in 1989, after another massive round of loosening restrictions regarding Taiwan, she picks up and moves her drama production to mainland China. And through the 90s, she proceeds to write a series of Taiwanese-Chinese co-produced historical dramas set in a shared, if idealized, past to include 1998's blockbuster drama, My Fair Princess, the story of a poor orphan girl who <laughs> becomes a princess, set during the 18th century Qing Dynasty. These dramas would go on to launch the careers of a number of household names, including Yi Xiao, Ruby Lin, and Fan Bingning.
But these historical dramas, popular as they were, were still competing with the Japanese post-trendy dramas with their stories of modern life. And so while Xiao Yanzi was navigating 18th century court life with an upbeat attitude in My Fair Princess, Japan's 1998 it heroine was Fukada Kyoko, playing a girl dying of AIDS, which she got selling her body because she wanted money to go see her fave musician who then falls in love with her but she's dying so they can never be together. In the hit tearjerker drama, Kamisama, Moskoshi Take, or God, Please Give Me Time, which was so juicy and had almost a quarter of the country tuning in to watch. And the unearthly gorgeous hero of that drama was an actor named Kanishiro Takeshi, half-Japanese, half-Taiwanese model slash actor slash idol, so handsome that he was scouted in his Taipei High School and swept right off into Taiwanese teen idol life. He was one of the four little kings of 1990s Taiwanese entertainment, along with Jimmy Lin, Nikki Wu, and of course, Alex Su, who starred in, yes, My Fair Princess. But back to Kaneshiro Takeshi, star of Kamisama. His debut single was 1992's Fenshu Dieli, an earnest breakup song accompanied by a music video showing the hunky young Takeshi posing artfully on a beach in a damp white t-shirt and shorts, too thrilled to be singing in front of the camera to be convincingly sad. He is devastatingly charming. Kaneshiro Takeshi was soon swept out of the domestic market, landing a role in Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express in Hong Kong, and from there following in Teresa Tang's footsteps and going to Tokyo, where he conquered the Japanese market with his role in Kamisama, before putting a final bow on 1998 by becoming the first Asian face of international fashion brand Prada. So this is what the media landscape kind of looked like before production began on Meteor Garden. You had a pan-Asian popularity of Japanese post-trendy dramas filtered through the Taiwanese-Chinese pipelines. Remember those bootleg VCDs? As well as something of a surging Taiwanese entertainment scene between Cheng Yao's works and actors like the Four Little Kings. But bigger success for them meant moving abroad to mainland China, Hong Kong, Japan. The timing could not have been better for a contemporary, 
youthful, post-trendy Taiwanese drama set in Taipei starring four Taiwanese hunks as well as a plucky Taiwanese heroine. And the one who stepped up to grab the opportunity was an ambitious television producer named Angie Chai. Angie, who would have been in her late 30s and the late 90s, had been working in television producing variety shows for years. And she would have been well aware of both the popularity of Japan's modern dramas as well as the lack of anything similar produced domestically. And, most importantly for this podcast, she must have also been aware that there was a gap in the domestic boy group market. So here's the situation that Angie would have seen. Okay, two of the four little kings, Nikki Wu and Alex Su. <laughs> star of My Fair Princess, had been part of a super popular boy group called the Little Tigers, along with third member Julian Chen. This teen trio is considered to be Taiwan's first boy group, and they were active from 1988 to about 1992 when they went on hiatus for the members to perform their mandatory military service. They briefly reunited in 1994, but yeah, it was brief. So, Taiwan's Little Tigers, not to be confused with Hong Kong's Little Tigers, who were active from 1984 to 1985, and sung in Cantonese. Taiwan's Little sang in Mandarin and were modeled on Japan's hugely popular boy group, Shonen Tai, to the extent that their first single, Little Green Apples, was even a cover of Shonen Tai's What's Your Name. The video for Little Green Apples is an amazing journey through 1980s digital video effects, as the youthful trio cavort in matching outfits through what I'm assuming is Taipei in one part of the screen. And then in another part of the screen, their faces like drift by in like a high-tech neon laser beam outer space like fever dream. It is incredible.
The Taiwanese pop scene by the late 80s was undergoing a huge transformation and professionalization. Just like Korea around the same time, both the economy and society were undergoing liberalization. And the music scene came to be dominated by two main companies, Rock Records and UFO Records. Rock Records focused on singer-songwriters and like had an artier image, but UFO Records adopted a more Japanese-style pop system with a pipeline of in-house producers working with idols. So <laughs> guess which company the Little Tigers were under? So musically, the Little Tigers were under the care of a stable of producers whose names come up again and again. And the core group seems to have come up through the campus rock slash folk scene as well as working in various capacities with the big singers of the day, such as Julie Sue, remember her from the intro? Uh, and the result is like a charming hodgepodge of Pan-Asian music, campus folk, like sprinkled with 80s razzle-dazzle. But then just as the Little Tigers were fading in 1992, came the LA Boys. That's B-O-Y-Z. Now, the competition bows to the Buddhas, the teachers, the holy intellects. Never in this world has there been such a dialect. My duty to the public is to serve and to protect. Just like he, man, I had the power of great skull. Every second spent with me can never be dull. I'm silky smooth like a lady's breast with qualities that none other can possess. Hold on my doll, hold on my doll. Come on, come on, just bust the move. Hold on my doll, hold on my doll. Come on, come on, just bust the move. Hold on my doll, hold on my doll. Come on, come on, just bust the move. trio of hip-hopping young Taiwanese-American boys from L.A. And while the Little Tigers had a very, you know, that Japanese-influenced Pan-Asian sound, the L.A. boys represented the exotic influence of the American diaspora returning home. The group was two brothers, Jeffrey and Stan Huang, and their cousin, Stephen Lin. They may have looked like the extremely cute boys next door, but the L.A. boys were like from L.A. Rather than the regional lingua franca of Mandarin, they rapped in English, mixed with their parents' Taiwanese dialect. As Jeffrey was quoted in a 1993 LA Times piece, quote, They don't understand what we're saying, Jeffrey Huang said. Besides, when it comes to Asians, there's really not that much to rap about, unquote. In other words, their nonsensical English lyrics gave Taiwanese youth a blank slate to project whatever image they wanted on the group. The group of doofy teens from Orange County also presented something of a blank slate to the Taiwanese music industry. And it's worth singling out two men in particular here. Songwriters and producers Jerry Lowe and Wang Ping. Jerry Lowe, aka DJ Jerry, was another California transplant who, according to a 1994 Billboard article, was discovered, quote, performing original works on two keyboards on the sidewalk outside a Taipei record store, unquote, and swiftly made his way into the Taiwanese music scene with his American feel and appreciation for hip-hop. Wang Ping was an industry songwriter and producer, a full decade older than Jerry Lowe. He was a guitar head from childhood and a huge enthusiast of American classic rock. Jerry Lowe, with his, you know, strength in hip-hop, and Wang Ping with his ear for a commercial hit, brought their strengths together for the first two L.A. Boys albums. 
Uh, the first was a hit, of course, but the second album, which I'd never heard before working on this episode and have listened to since at least a dozen times all the way through, was a masterpiece and a blockbuster hit, selling something like 200,000 copies. Along with a catchy title track, the album cycles through an invigorating blend of wild beats, courtesy Jerry Lowe, tempered by the smooth commercial ear of Wang Ping, and topped with endearingly clumsy lyrics from the boys. Duh themselves. the new jack swing of head over heels over-the-top kitsch of oriental mystery.
standout track for me is the unexpectedly beautiful Raining Night, which features a vocal arrangement right out of John Phillips' Laurel Candy and a flute solo. Jerry Lowe moved on to acts like hip-hop-themed boy group, The Party. Wang Ping would go on to produce the rest of the run of LA Boys albums, which by 1997 feared they disbanded, uh, was sounding far more commercial than their earlier, more manic albums. And then, well, if you were a teen girl at the end of the 90s in Taiwan, most of your domestic hunks were either rapidly aging out of the teen hunk market or drifting into more aggressive hip hop. Or, like LA Boy Steve Lin, they were moving back to California to become orthopedic surgeons, and there were no replacements on the horizon. Sure, there were your imported hunks from Japan. Johnny's and Associates in the late 90s was very popular with the Harizu, or Japanophile fangirls. Duo Kinky Kids performed a concert in February of 2000, and the response was so good that 2001 saw them return, along with V6, who were so popular that they did two concerts that year. But imported hunks will never be as good as the ones produced at home. And Angie Chai must have understood this as she'd begun assembling the pieces for what would become Meteor Garden, one foot in the Japanese-influenced post-trendy drama world, and one in the plucky heroine-led domestic stories of drama queen Chung Yao. Meteor Garden is based on the girls' manga series Hanayori Dango, Boys Over Flowers, written by Kamio Yoko. The series ran for 51 volumes between 1992 and 2008, which meant that the story was incomplete when Meteor Garden was being scripted, and the drama necessarily has to invent some of the plot. The basic outline is this. 
Shanghai, played by Barbie Suve, is a lower middle class girl whose parents have strong armed her into attending a prestigious college where all the rich kids go to make connections, but where not much learning takes place. The college is dominated by a pack of four rich guys, the F4, who bully their way into getting everything they want. Well, almost everything. One day they push too far and Shanghai reaches the end of her patience with the rich kids and the brand names and the bullying and she stands up to F4 ringleader hot-tempered Daoming Su played by Jerry Yang and he is floored. Nobody has ever spoken to him like this before. And after trying and failing to get Shanghai to bend to his will, he falls in love. And it is not mutual at first. But Barbie Sue and Jerry Yan generate some great chemistry. And the series explores their blossoming romantic relationship as well as the friendships between the other members of the F4 and their friendships with Shanghai, especially the soft-spoken Zhuazile, <laughs> played by Vic Xu. So there's the scene in episode 11, which is the most meta scene in the entire series, when Dao Ming Su sends the other three F4 members to keep an eye on Shanghai while he's forced to go to New York City. And they visit her at her part-time job at a bakery where she's angrily complaining that she wants to leave and wallow in her personal angst about whether or not she likes Dao Ming Chu and her dumb parents and could somebody just buy all these cakes already. So, up roll the rest of the F4, played by Vic Xu, who I mentioned already, plus Ken Chu and Ben Miss Wu. And Shanghai, huffing adorably, is like, ugh. What do you dumb rich guys know about selling cakes anyways? And Fikshu is like, just leave it to those two. And then cut to the next scene and Kenshu and Venisu are giving away kisses with cake purchase and there's this line of women like stretching down the block. <laughs> and like two words, my friends, two words, female gaze. The drama, it would be understatement to say that the drama was a hit in Taiwan. The drama was a hit in Taiwan. And then it spread across the region through VCD and cable TV. And it became a hit everywhere else, too. Jerry Yang got to ditch his perm. And the F4 signed on to become a real idol group. History was made. Their first album, Meteor Rain, was one of the best-selling Mandarin pop albums of 2002. And the title track, Meteor Rain, was a hit in Taiwan. F4 and Meteor Garden kickstarted what came to be known as the Taiwanese wave, the precursor in many ways to the Hallyu wave of Korean entertainment that would come later. The Taiwanese Tourism Board would even go on to use F4 as brand ambassadors in tourism ads aimed at female tourists, especially the wealthier Japanese tourists. And it worked. 
not just the F4 ads, but the Taiwanese wave. The somewhat romantic female friend trip travel destination image of Taiwan, former colony, remains in Japan to this day. There are Japanese travel guidebooks for Taiwan specifically meant for groups of female friends. Johnny's and Associates groups still do exotic and romantic photo shoots there. Wish to see you in Taiwan. But back to F4. Just like idols, the four novice actors let their personalities feed into their roles. There was Jerry Yan, drop-dead gorgeous and extremely charming. He got his start in show business by winning a modeling competition and had already been working part-time professionally when Meteor Garden came along. Vic Shu, a few years younger, apparently accompanied a friend to the audition for Meteor Garden, but was cast instead of the friend. As he explained in a 2006 CNN interview, quote, I had accompanied a friend to the audition and was waiting for him in the corridor in the office. The light was very dim and I hid in a corner against the wall. And when the director was going into his office, he saw me sitting there and thought, why is this person here? And then he looked again and said, this person's manners really seem like the character of Wasele. So he invited me to the audition. Unquote. Ken Chu, born in Taiwan, but educated in Singapore, was working as a cook when he was scouted by the production team. He remained a reluctant celebrity throughout his career, saying in a 2009 interview that if he had to do it all over again, he wouldn't. And then there was Van Ness Wu, born and raised in America, who had been working at a dead-end telemarketing gig before deciding to try his luck in the entertainment business back in Taiwan. The F4 became overnight stars, and as the drama slowly spread to other corners of the Chinese language market, and out throughout Southeast Asia, they became stars there too. And while looking up information for this episode, I saw blog post after blog post talking fondly about the drama and how inescapable Meteor Garden was in places like the Philippines. And this is also where the first threads of what would become Western fandom also enter the picture. My impression is that for many young second generation Asian immigrants in places like Canada and the United States, Meteor Garden was a real breath of fresh air. It was relatable. Cool, even. I mean, Barbie Sue had tattoos. Here was a drama they could enjoy unironically and feel connected to their Asian heritage. It wasn't just Japanese lady tourists who began traveling to Taiwan in search of some show business glamour. But it did take a few years for Meteor Garden's influence to fully bloom. VCDs were passed around. Regional cable channels picked it up. Many areas, including Japan, didn't air it until 2003. And then, coincidentally or not, F4 debuted as a musical act in Japan just as the Japanese version of Boys Over Flowers was breaking big. F4 didn't reach Arashi levels of fame, but they rode a decent-sized wave of popularity through the mid to late 2000s in Japan, even performing at Yokohama Arena. And as an auntie caught in newsreel footage outside Yokoadi in 2008 said, uh, quote, they're all tall and have good faces, unquote. Uh, yes. Yes, they are. F4 remained more a marriage of convenience for the members than anything else, with even their albums containing more solo cuts than group songs. And they all pursued fairly successful solo careers independent of their work with F4. But that doesn't negate the impact they had as a unit. F4, like Meteor Garden, like Teresa Tang, had a real pan-Asian appeal. In their first single, Meteor Rain, 
was even a cover of Japanese singer Hirai Ken's Gaining Through Losing. Uh, and their second single was with Wang Ping. Yes, the same Wang Ping who worked with the LA Boys and now was going to guide the careers of the next generation of idol songs. Wang Ping, always with an ear to commercial magic, gave F4 a light R&B touch, although he did manage to squeeze in, yes, a guitar solo. Meteor Rain was so successful that it spawned a boom of Japanese girls' manga adaptations. 2002 was Peach Girl with F4's Vanessa Wu, Marmalade Boy with F4's Ken Chu. 2004 was the classic adaptation of Mars, reuniting Barbie Sue with Vic Shu as star-crossed lovers, a pairing so powerful that the couple would go on to become IRL lovers too. Then came 2005 manga adaptation called It Started With a Kiss, starring cute as a button Ariel Lin and tall, cool drink of water Cho Chang, and the handsome scene stealer, secondary hero, Jiro Wang. So not only were these manga adaptations well received in the target market of middle class youth in Asia, there was also an unexpected and unlooked for crossover with Western anime fans who spread the word of live action dramas through their online networks and eventually ended up reaching female dominated subculture spaces like LiveJournal, where fans traded subtitled files and links to dodging streaming and download sites so that they could see real live action versions of the stories that they loved. And what's fascinating looking back at these communities was how the sharp divides of language and culture were simply sidestepped. If you couldn't speak any of the Asian languages, what difference did it make if your content was in Mandarin or Japanese? Rain's delightful 2004 Korean language drama Full House was on completely equal footing with the aforementioned 2004 Mandarin language Mars which was on equal footing with Kimura Takuya's 2004 Japanese language drama, Pride. And I have vivid memories of watching all three of these on bootleg DVD at my friend's house. My friend was an Asian. Um, she'd come over from the Soviet Union as a young teen, and like me, she didn't really connect with American pop culture. So we sat around eating takeout, swooning at the romantic parts, crying at the sad parts, um, you know, giggling. Uh, at gossip about all these actors and just getting way too invested in these fairy tale narratives. Those are some pretty good memories, I have to say. Um, and this was years before legal drama streaming sites like Vicky. And if my friend didn't have a copy on DVD, 
we'd get her laptop out and she showed me how to find all the good stuff. And if I couldn't wait for one of our evening dates, I would, you know, put my skills to good use and dig up an episode on my own. Maybe part three of seven would be missing, or there'd be no subtitles and I'd have to try and figure out what was happening through context clues. But it was worth it for that emotional payoff when the main couple finally, finally got together. In the end, there was only one thing that ended up separating out K-dramas and K-pop among Western fans, and that was the fact that Korea actively sought us out. But even now you can tell the fans who got into Asian pop culture before the real Korean culture push. Earlier fans are much more likely to pick up on regional trends and watch, for example, um, a popular anime like Yuri on Ice, which was a hit all over Asia, or a popular mainland Chinese drama like The Untamed, which, again, a hit all over Asia. English language Arashi fans and English language Shiny fans used to travel in the same circles, but now you're more likely to find that K-pop fans have separated themselves into a K-pop culture bubble, with certain fandoms going even further to limit themselves to just one group. Um, and it's not like that if you go, you know, actually to Asia. Um, and I hope that this podcast helps break down some of these artificial barriers in the English language fan circles. So, It Started With a Kiss was a drama that I watched in pieces, usually early in the morning before I went to work. Ariel Lin plays a sweet, every-girl shoujo heroine who has a crush on an impossibly cold but drop-dead gorgeous guy played by Joe Cheng. Well, Ariel Lin decides to throw caution to the wind and confess her giant crush, which does not go over well. She is humiliated. And then to top it all off, she and her father just have to move in with Joe Cheng's family after their house is destroyed. Can she win him over? Will she just pine away? Why is Jiro Wang's secondary hero character so sunshiny and cute? The drama had family values, messages about working hard for your dreams, and a massively charming cast. Lead actor Jo Chang would go on to do a bit of singing, but he was not an idol. He was a model turned actor. The idol in It Started With a Kiss was Jiro Wang, even if he didn't know it yet. The story, from what I remember from old gossip forums and what my internet searching in English was able to dig up, is that Jiro Wang's parents were older when they had him, and his father, a war veteran, had a chronic illness and passed away when Jiro was a teenager, leaving the family in massive debt. Jiro hustled, working as many part-time jobs as he could, including construction work, dishwasher, handing out flyers, and some part-time modeling. Well, the kid had star potential, and ended up being picked for a new idol group by BGM, which was one of the um, international companies attracted to Taiwan in, in the wake of the professionalization of the music business. But then BGM's stock crashed after the terror attacks of September 11th, and the project was scrapped. He tried again with another company, but was rejected, and Chiro then went to do his mandatory military service, and came back in 2003 to work behind the scenes as a modeling assistant. But he couldn't quite hide that charm under a basket forever. He was approached by Comic Productions for a role as the secondary male lead in the drama, it started with a kiss, and Jiro, despite some misgivings about never having acted before, said yes. The drama, as I said before, was a smash hit, and Jiro Wang, must have been about 23 at the time, was swept up 
and directly into a brand new boy group called Fahrenheit. The other members were Calvin Chen, about 24, who was one of eight lucky winners of the annual Chinese language Vancouver-based talent competition called Sunshine Nation. What he won was a ticket to Taiwan and a chance at the career he really wanted. Calvin had been studying to get his master's degree in economics in Vancouver, but his heart was on the stage. And then there was Wu Chun, then 25, a Brunei-born model from a wealthy family, described as a jade-like beauty in at least one fan-translated article I found. He was scouted by comic productions for a lead in the drama, Tokyo Juliet, opposite It Started With a Kiss heroine Ariel Lin. Um, while he was on a visit to Taipei. And despite the fact that he could not speak Mandarin and he had to be dubbed in his first ever leading role. Uh, finally, there is Aaron Yan, then just about 19, who apparently ran a popular blog when he was approached by comic productions to audition for a drama role. While the grown-up Wu Chun was set to break hearts in Tokyo Juliet, the other more boyish three, Jiro, Calvin, and Aaron, we're tapped for one of those high school dramas starring a million and one young talents competing for screen time battle royale style that I love so much and talked about in episode 26. This drama was called KO1. And it was exactly as campy and silly as its Japanese cousins like Goksen. So K01 takes place at a high school for juvenile delinquents where everybody is ranked according to their knockout or KO ability. Jiro Wang plays the leader of this class, and through a series of mishaps and hijinks becomes BFF with Calvin and Aaron's characters, and then the three of them take on enemies together while also attempting to, you know, get their lives back on track. To say that KO1 was a hit is to put it lightly. KO1 was a cultural phenomenon inside and outside of Taiwan, spawning spin-offs and sequels, as well as rocketing the newly formed Fahrenheit into the spotlight. They didn't make their album debut until the end of 2006, but they'd already participated in drama OSTs, and fangirls from Taipei to Vancouver were ready and waiting. One of my favorite tracks from that first Fahrenheit album is actually the song from Wu Chun's Tokyo Juliet OST, yet another Japanese manga adaptation. Uh, this adaptation was set in the fashion world, and it's a pretty good drama, you should watch it. The song Only Have Feelings For You is a light, very groovy pop tune written by singer J.J. Lin with lyrics by a young female lyricist named Zhang Jiwei. The arrangement has the four members of Fahrenheit paired up with powerhouse vocalist Hebe Tian for a very charming four versus one um, duet. <laughs> the melody is simple enough for the four members of Fahrenheit, none of whom had real professional training as singers to master, as well as giving Hebe a solid foundation to let her voice soar. Despite only having known each other for a short time, Fahrenheit and Hebe sound pretty good together. 
无解的眼神，心像海底针，光是猜测，我是愚不成，有点烦人，又有点迷人。浪漫没天分，反应够迟钝，不够精神，花雕琢颜色，但很矛盾，喜As well as a song from the OST for Wu Chun and Jiro Wang's drama Hanakimi, which starred Seichi's Ella. <laughs> In case you haven't gotten the picture, Fahrenheit, like F4, was an idol group intimately tied up with the world of television dramas, and the cross-promotion worked both ways. Fans of a drama would become fans of one of the members, seek out the group, um, fans of the group could then tune into the dramas to see their favorite member. Both sets of fans can buy the OST. In the second half of the 2000s, Fahrenheit was H.O.T. all across Asia, as well as with fans in the West like me. Taiwan even tapped them to replace F4 as brand ambassadors for the nation's tourism industry. What could go wrong? Well, a lot, actually. The group would disband in 2012 with a lot of sour feelings. So looking back, I think the biggest problem with Fahrenheit is that they were thrown together as fully formed adults with lives and histories, and in Wu Chun's case, a secret wife. There were personality clashes as well as clashes in values and lifestyle. The age gap between an outspoken 19-year-old blogger and a 25-year-old husband and father from a conservative and wealthy background is pretty big. 
And imagine the difference in mindset that Jiro's difficult upbringing with the debt hanging over his head versus the mindset of members who had comfortable upper middle class or even wealthy backgrounds would be. Um, you know, I don't think anyone is at fault, really. Um, but I think that they were just four very, very different people. And I think I have to mention too that there were gay rumors that dogged young Aaron for years. Years and years. Um, rumors that exploded in 2018 when an ex-boyfriend leaked photos to the press and claimed that Aaron had, um, like, triple time cheated on him. But thanks to detective work from Gossip Cops, the cheating part was revealed to be false. But unfortunately, um, Aaron's sexuality had been forcibly revealed not on his terms. Still, Aaron's fans have remained very loyal and he remains as outspoken and busy with acting and television work as ever. Um, let's see, Wu Chun is out there being a dad and posting thirst trap gym selfies on Instagram. At 40, he is making the pivot from handsome leading man to character roles and he's doing it with grace and style, no shirt required. Calvin Chen is living his best life. He just got married this year to popular actress Joanne Tseng, who featured in the 2014 video for his solo song, How Has Love Been? And my long time ago favorite, Jiro Wang, tried his hand with production and fashion over the years, um, you know, hustled various gigs to varying results, but um, he's still active in show business. And the latest news in English I found had him on a television variety show in March 2020 giving a tour of his house where he'd turned his kitchen into a storeroom for fan gifts and had installed a squat toilet. Stars. They're just like us. So I hope you enjoyed this march down memory lane as much as I did. The Fahrenheit discography is still very listenable in my opinion. Full of sweet ballads and that catchy Creole Taiwanese musical sense. Um, coincidentally or not though, Fahrenheit's demise overlapped with the aggressive push of export K-pop K-dramas, especially in the West, where the barrier of entry for Korean products dropped dramatically, and a new crop of non-Asian Korean culture fans began to spring up. My impression is that the domestic idol group fan culture um, in Taiwan had never been terribly strong, and while there are still domestic idol groups like Special, put together by Comic Productions, there hasn't been another Fahrenheit or F4 with that pan-Asian appeal. And fans who want to participate in idol group culture, I think they're more likely to pick a Johnny's group or a K-pop group to stand. But there are still plenty of singer-actors in Taiwanese dramas, plenty of hunks, very popular ones, but my impression is that the domestic idol group culture is fairly quiet. And on that note, I'll play us out with a song called Forget Him by Joanna Wang, Daughter of LA Boys producer Wang Shiping, whose work I found while looking up articles on her dad, and after listening to Joanna's work, um, immediately fell in love. But before I go, just a quick heads up that I'm no longer on Twitter and have taken down my blog for the time being, but I did open an Instagram where I've been posting a picture a day of something from my collection. Um, so please check it out if you're interested at underscore idolcastpod. And stay safe, everyone. I will talk to you next time. Bye-bye.